0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: I mean, even today, if you come up through... Um, the Scottish borders and the train either to Glasgow and Edinburgh, one of the first things that will strike you, especially if you come from the, the more congested south in England, you, is the absence of people. You know, the odd cottage, the odd small village and that's it, but men, mile after mile of emptiness. It wasn't always like that.
2: That was Tom Devine talking about the legacy of the Scottish clearances.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most important and traumatic events in Scottish history, the clearances of the 18th and 19th centuries. They're explored in the latest book by Sir Tom Devine, an Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne paid a visit to Tom in his house in Hamilton recently to find out more.
0: So for people who might not be familiar with this period of Scotland's history, what exactly did the clearances involve?
1: Well, we've got to see it with a, a broad lens to begin with. Um, uh, English, the movement to uh, modernity in England was was by and large evolutionary. Um, in Scotland, industrialisation and urbanisation took place from the later 18th century, and the growth was explosive. Um, it was the fastest rate towards modernisation in any part of Western and Central Europe, including the British Isles. And one part of that process of modernisation was the response of rural society to more people, uh, to a larger population, first of all, but to a greater number of individuals within the society who were now no longer food producers because they were living in towns and engaged in manufacturing industry. So the response of rural society was to become more efficient. And one part of that movement towards efficiency was to modernise the farm structures Uh, To get rid of part-time labour, we call them in Scotland cotters, C-O-T-T-A-R-S. We reckon that in the old world, they they are numbered, um, at least in the rural areas, they numbered about a quarter to a third of the entire population of Scotland. Uh, And of course, most importantly, if you will, in areas of pastoral husbandry, that is when uh, you see the evolution of large-scale cattle ranches, and most importantly, eventually, uh, large-scale sheep latifundia. Um, The ratio at that time was the assumption that one shepherd to 600 sheep was the acceptable and most efficient ratio. That meant, since the big sheep farms needed the land at a lower level for wintering, that meant dispossession. That often meant dispossession of those people. Uh, One of the arguments in the book, of course, is that that particular type of abrupt dispossession from areas of um, uh, sheep farming and cattle ranching uh, was just as abrupt, and in fact much earlier in its occurrence than in the better known fate of the Highland people in the period from about the mid-18th century through to the 1850s.
0: What happened to those who were evicted or lost their lands?
1: Well, I mean, here here is the big division between um, the Western Highlands and Islands and probably the Central Highlands as well at at, at one level and the rest of Scotland at another. Um, uh, If you take the Western Highlands and Islands, uh, or Gaeldom, as I call it, or the Crofting Counties, you could equally call it any of them... um, Sometimes it led to emigration, transatlantic emigration. Sometimes it led to movement to the growing urban areas of the south. Often it, it meant actual movement. This was the case especially before about 1815, if you like, the last quartile of the 18th and early 19th centuries. Often it led, um, you know, because the, the, the land class still wanted to retain labour power for things like kelp manufacture. That's the collection of seaweed to produce an alkali which was used in the chemical industries of the time. For military employment, because they established family regiments among the estate populations for which they were paid significant sums, they became what I've called no longer clan chieftains, but military entrepreneurs. And for things like illicit whiskey making, slate quarrying, etc. cetera. Um, So this is why what grew up alongside the clearance of the internal areas, the glens, if you like, inside which were laid down to sheep, what happened was on the coastland there grew up the crofting system. Uh, This was a system whereby individual families were given a small slice of land for subsistence purposes, but for most of the year they were expected to work as pro- proletarians in fishing, kelping, illicit whiskey making uh, agricultural improvement on the landowner's estate, etc., 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 And we know from the planning process that these crops were cut to a minimum so that the people could not subsist entirely from the land. Ergo, what happens when the, uh, the, these by-employments, as they can be called, fail in the 1810s, 20s and 30s. A huge malign destitution crosses the whole of the Western Highlands and Islands. And eventually you have the great catastrophe of the failure of the potatoes, which was one of the few remaining supports. And after that, you get mass migration. Because between the censuses of 1841 and 61, the Western Highlands and Islands from Cape Wrath in the north to Ardnamurchan Peninsula in the south, and including all the Inner Hebrides, they lost a third of their 1841 population, and much of it was supported emigration to Canada and eventually to Australia. Much of it was people simply leaving because of the crisis that they were experiencing. And if you look then at the Lowland society, it's quite different, and this helps to explain the difference different acceptances. Uh, What we see in the lowlands is the growth of an industrial world and a a huge increase in urbanisation at the time of the Scottish Industrial Revolution. Uh, So there's not many many parts of lowland Scotland which don't have alternative employments available, and that diffuses discontent and makes a much smoother process. Uh, The other thing I found out by constructing rentals, sometimes going back 150 years, and studying the depletion of the people. In pastoral farming areas, in the borders, for example, and in the highlands, it tends to be abrupt. It tends to be collective eviction, movement of people over a very short period of time. But in uh, arable farming areas, or mixed farming areas, um, it's it's, it's an evolutionary process. Sometimes it can take 30, 40 years from maybe, just to give you one example that I trace, maybe a dozen um, possessors of land, tenant farmers, to the point we get there's one farmsteading left and enlarged farmsteading, and there's one tenant. It took time because the new tenant farmers of the new age had to learn the new improved practices. In other words, they were necessary for the landowner in a way where the people... Um, in uh, sheep farming and cattle farming areas were no longer required. They they were a surplus population.
0: Obviously, everybody's experience was different, but can you give us a sense of what it would really have been like for the people who were evicted?
1: Apart from the great uh, revolt in uh, the border area, the Western Borders that I talked about earlier, the so-called Levelers Revolt, because that meant they were levelling the dikes and there's a fair amount of evidence of how the people reacted to that and uh, how they responded and you know whether they decided to stay or go or whatever and and so and so that that is covered uh, but apart from that there's silence in much of the area of Scotland but there is the folk tradition um the uh, the song the poetry the traditions that that live on through Um, this kind of oral culture which existed in Highland Scotland in the 18th and 19th centuries. And from that, um, and the occasional evidence given to government inquiries, unfortunately after the clearances were over, so it's referring back, uh, we can get a pretty good idea of the emotional experience that people, people felt. And one of the other things which is very interesting is that when we get to the most draconian clearances of all, which never that Romans never experienced, but the Highlands did experience uh, during the potato famine um, in the mid 19th century, uh, such was the growing interest in what was going on up there. And because there was no steamship connections between the west of Scotland, the Clyde ports, for example, and the Hebrides, you get a small army of reporters coming to the area and especially being present when there's, for example, a forced eviction or evictions, which result in a battle, I mean, which result in a protest against the forces of law and order. Intriguingly enough, usually led by women, the women of the settlements. Um, And that is reported in newspapers like the Scotsman or the Herald and the Times, uh, Illustrated London News and, 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 and outlets like that. And there's, there's, there are sometimes very detailed descriptions, at least of how these observers um, evaluated the response of the people, uh, which, um, which is useful to the historian.
0: Why do you think it is that the Highland clearances have become so iconic and so well remembered, whereas there seems to be a bit of historical amnesia surrounding the lowland clearances in the rest of Scotland?
1: Um, it's a fascinating question and it would take me several hours to answer it. But um, just a few headlines, if you will. Um, I have co- not come across any folk memory of dispossession in either Lowland or Border Scotland, despite the fact that I know from the evidence I've, I've looked at nearly 40 sets of estate papers, etc., cetera, um, and a number of other sources uh, over time, uh, that I know that in those particular areas, the scale of land loss was very considerable. I even argue, controversially, that by the end of the period of clearance, the lowland population had less access to land than the West Highland population. Because despite a lot, of, a lot of strife, difficulty and trauma, the crofting population, as we know today, still clings on in certain parts of the Western Highlands and Islands. Uh, this is going to be um, a challenging idea for some to accept. There's a long-term, a long-run oral tradition, uh, which transmitted from generation to generation what had happened in the Highlands. Uh, the other thing is that there is an argument, and the argument is considered in the book, that the scale and nature of Highland dislocation was much uh, uh, was much more traumatic. Uh, although I wouldn't push that too too far. The other thing which is very important is that so much of what happened in the highlands was because of eviction in order to make large-scale sheep ranches or farms. And that meant, because of that, and the failure of highland industrialisation, there was very little opportunity for alternatives for those people who had lost, or at least particularly long-term alternatives. Those that existed, and some of them did, between the 1770s and about 1815 were ephemeral. They disappeared after 1815, after 1820, like snow a dyke on a dike in a spring day, leaving the people destitute. Uh, so that, that experience of destitution, that experience of trauma lived on. Uh, but the interesting thing also is, this is a question of values and culture as much as economy. You see, clanship, the highland social structure, endured at least until the early 18th century. And one of the aspects of clanship was land was given in return for service. Uh, That elites, clan gentry if you will, allocated land to those below them in the social pyramid in response for rental, but also in response for military service. And that only died away gradually in the 17th and early 18th centuries. And then the coup de grâce came with the failure of the Jacobite rebellion or rising in 1745-6, and the state's attempt at pacifying or, if you like, disciplining the areas of recalcitrant um, Jacobite disaffection. And what happened then, of course, the highlands were stable. There was no longer any need for military support. Um, And uh, that, that gave the, if you like, the former clan chiefs the possibility of metamorphosing themselves into commercial landowners, but there was a disjunction, and the disjunction was the almost untranslatable Gallic term called duachas, D-U-T-H-C-E-S, and it really meant, there's a number of translations, but one important one is the view of the people living on right through the period after the end of clanship the view of the people that they had a right to land. They had a right to land in return for the service that their ancestors had given in blood to those who owned the land. That concept um, had disappeared from lowland society. In lowland society, by about 1700, the relationships were entirely and exclusively economic. So it's more or less accepted that landowners at the end of a lease had the right
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Can you give us a sense of the scale of events and how, how violent and how destructive things got?
1: Well, in some parts of the of the area, and particularly in the Scottish Borders, and in the highlands. And again, significant enough, these are the areas where they're trying to build up these extraordinary um, pastoral farms, you know, with, with sometimes with 15, 20, 40, and eventually 100,000 sheep. So areas are swept clear of people. I mean, even today, if you come up through um, the Scottish borders and the train either to Glasgow and Edinburgh, one of the first things that will strike you, especially if you've come from the, the more congested south, uh, Uh, in England, there's the absence of people. You know, the odd cottage, um, the odd small village and that's it, but mile after mile of emptiness. It wasn't always like that. Um, And so sometimes, and we do have a a significant number of evidences of this, police and even soldiers had to be used if the people uh, refused to go. And, And, of course, sometimes the people refused to go and protested there was a large-scale revolt, for example, in Galloway in the 1720s, that's in the Scottish borders, and at least 50 small-scale acts of protest in the Western Highlands and Islands. Um, so some of it could be quite could be quite nasty, uh, what what, what, actually, what actually occurred. In terms of scale, Scotland in the 1750s had a population size of 1.2 million. At the end of the cycle of clearance, which you know, the last major evictions in the Highlands were in the 1850s during the so-called Great Highland Famine, uh, Scotland's equivalent of the Irish Famine of the same period, um, the population is round about 3.8 million. Now, in the earlier period, about nine-tenths of the people uh, lived on the land And in fact, to be without some access to land in a subsistence-based society was to court disaster. It was actually to court survival itself. Uh, And so, if you look at the the numbers, with about only about ten percent of the population living in largest towns and cities, this kind of process that I've described affected, to a greater or lesser extent, everyone else. Hardly any family, hardly any area of the countryside. Was left untouched. I used to tell my students that if you look if you look around modern the modern Scottish countryside and take out the the motor cars, the buses, the telegraph lines, etc., and simply concentrate on the roadway systems, uh, concentrate on the hedgerows, the dry-stained dikes, the farmsteadings, all of those were in place by about the 1830s, 1840s. There's been hardly any change in terms of the spatial arrangements of rural Scotland in that sense, apart from, say, the growth of villages and, and small towns in the countryside. Um, and then if you look back at the period before 1750, if you look back to the to the old world, the old world um, in, in relation to the new would have been unrecognisable to modern Scots and equally those who lived in that old world before 1750, if they had been able to see what happened during the revolutionary period between the 1760s and the 1830s, they would not have recognised it. The old world, bog land, um, joint farm steadings separated by mile after mile of heath, um, hardly any trees, roads few and far between, uh, and many, most of the farm buildings, uh, turf huts, so it was, it was, by any standards, it was a, a complete break with a past that had existed in Scotland since at least early medieval times. So an old way of life was sundered, literally over a generation.
0: I think that's one of the things I found really interesting in your book. In your, in your introduction, you talk about how this idea of highland culture has kind of been commercialised and yeah. exported aclo- across the globe but that actually that is not really an accurate representation of uh, Scotland that was lost through the clearances.
1: No, no, um, this is a Victorian invention. I call it Highlandism um, for a number of reasons in the 19th century. And remember, up until the end of uh, the Jacobite Risings, lowland Scots, many of whom were Presbyterians, uh, regarded uh, Highland Scots with complete contempt and fear. They were often the, the sources of destabilisation. Many supported the exile House of Stuart and wanted to indulge in counter-revolution against the, the famous Glorious Revolution of, 16, of 1688-9. Um, and of course, although a minority of the Highlanders were only Roman, were Roman Catholic, the majority were Episcopalians. That is the kind of format they preferred was that very similar to the Church of England. Uh, which was anathema to Northern Presbyterian Scots. So here you have this extraordinary development that by the middle decades of the 19th century, to external observers at least, a society which was even more industrialised than England by the census of 1851. In 1851, 41.6% of English men were employed in mining or manufacturing. In Scotland it was 43%. That made Scotland the most industrialised society on earth in the middle decades of the 19th century. And this, in an extraordinary, almost a process of alchemy, um, it starts to present to the world not simply a rural face, but a Highland face. Um, And, of course, that's been been the position since then. Uh, uh, The romantic invention of uh, Highlandism I actually call it, in terms of the the kilt and the um, sporran and the plaid, uh, I call it sartorial nationalism. The way in which a certain form of dress has been extracted from one of the poorest, well, the poorest society uh, in Scotland, formally regarded as a recalcitrant part of Scotland, and becomes the mode of dress... Uh, which is instantly recognisable uh, throughout the world to this day. This, this appeal is global. It would almost require a social psychologist rather than a historian to explain it. Uh, just to give you an example, which I I use in the introduction to the book, uh, the well-known um, uh, orchestra leader and violinist from Belgium, André Lueu, who's become, you know, very popular throughout the globe, he's on record as showing uh, or determining that... Um, the, the, the one tune which really upsets the audience almost to tears his audiences everywhere he goes is Highland Cathedral, composed by two Germans for a Highland Games Festival in Munich. As I say, this is outside the compass of an historian. This requires a combination of psychiatry and also the discipline of social psychology to explain.
0: So in terms of the, the clearances... What do you think are some of the, the biggest misconceptions or misunderstandings about it that you want to address well, with this book?
1: The biggest one of all, of course, is the, which will appear, uh, you know, to my fellow Scots certainly to the vast majority of them, is that clearance can no longer, if this, if my argument and the evidential base that I use to uh, support the argument, uh, can no longer be regarded as uniquely Highland. Um. I had no intent to extract uh, uh, the unique uh, process of victimhood from gildom, because I'm very concerned about what the reaction might be to that. Uh, It's just so happened that this is the way the evidence speaks. I I entered this a number of years ago with an open mind, and the result of the investigation demonstrated uh, unequivocally that loss of land, almost all of it, without the consent of the people um, uh, uh, who, who, who experienced it was Scotland-wide. Uh, and some of it occurred on a significant scale long before the Highland clearances were ever, ever thought of. Second, um, the second thing that intrigues me is, if this is the case, and we've already touched on this to some degree, why is it only the Highland experiences, the experience that has been remembered Uh, Why the amnesia? Why the lack of folk memory elsewhere in Scotland? And a goodly part of the book tries to address that fact. And then the other third uh, third area was: um, uh, if there are such regional, uh, if if, if there is a a set of um, regional differences which might explain this, what are they? It seemed to me that I had to take three centuries uh, looking at the old world looking at the the motors of change, looking at the impact of change, and then, importantly, looking at the way that the regional societies were at the end of change, in other words, roundabout, depending on, on region, but certainly it was all over um, in the lowlands by about 18, 1840, all over in the highlands by about the 1860s, so that's why the end date is, ni- is nineteen is 1900.
0: You mentioned near the start of the interview that you... You're anticipating this is going to be challenging, in, in your words. Why do you think that the clearances are still such an emotive issue?
1: Well, I mean, just to give you an example of how emotive they are, um, I quote in the book um, several examples, and they're collected together in an annex to the text at the end, uh, of, of modern, modern writers. I wouldn't necessarily say I would classify them as historians, but certainly modern writers and commentators who have, and of course they're specifically thinking of the Highland clearances, uh, have likened what happened in Gaeldom in the late 18th and early 19th century to what happened in the eastern territories of um, the Nazi empire. Um, uh, That a holocaust, that a genocide, had occurred in Highland Scotland in this period.
0: What do you think about those comparisons?
1: There There was some partial evidence that maybe older people... Um, uh, could have suffered and maybe even died as a consequence of the eviction process. But if they did, um, uh, it didn't happen on any great scale. And it certainly wasn't part of a conscious design, as it was, of course, in the genocide. So that therefore means that the historian has got to ask the question, why is that? Um, not necessarily to condemn it, because it's, it's obviously farcical, But why do people... Right along those lines, and I'm not talking about you know, um, I'm not talking about fanatics. I'm talking about you know people who have written books on the Scottish Highlands in the last thirty to forty years. And the other striking example is the um, the 220 foot memorial tower uh, to the first Duke of Sutherland, uh, which is raised above the village of Galsby in East Sutherland. Um, and A, the, um, uh, these, the, the statement with an exclamation at the end murderer, right, in paint. Secondly, the continuous attempts to try and uh, 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 remove stones at the base in order to topple it. And the reports, because I actually phoned up the local police to try and find out and this, and he says, and the response was yes, it's happening on a regular basis. So that shows the continuing depth of feeling in some parts of the Highlands and by some people in those areas. It does not exist at all elsewhere in Scotland where the, 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 if you like, the social formations that were established during the age of the Scottish clearances are there, all there to be seen. Um, you know, the farmsteadings, uh, the new compact farm holdings, uh, the areas which are depopulated but there's regard- they're regarded as a normal part of the landscape so it's 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 um it raises yet another uh issue because I, that's these are the kind of these are the kind of aspects of historical analysis i absolutely relish um peculiar peculiar developments which are occurring in one part of the society i'm studying but not in the other and so therefore it opens the portal into comparative history.
0: Of course, this is, this is a kind of hugely um, long and varied question to answer, mm. but can we pin something down as being responsible for the clearances? Was it the advent of capitalism? Was it changing social attitudes?
1: The reasons, again, in very uh, brief terms are the huge increase in market our markets for raw materials and foods, and drink crops, as a consequence of urbanisation and rising population across the country, and especially during the Napoleonic Wars, where alternative sources of food supply were cut off um, for for several for several years. Therefore, the price of food, um, the price of grain, uh, the price of milk, the price of beef goes up, and that gives um, landowners. Uh, the incentive to raise rental. And because there is rental, it's becoming very difficult for those who don't have the capacity to innovate or the sources of capital to pay it. And so you get a very sharp reduction in those on the land uh, who have full access to tenancies, whether it be the Highlands borders or Lowland Scotland. The second factor is ideological. There was an assumption in beginning in the period of the Scottish Enlightenment uh, two, two, two quite significant ones, that A, land was, was no longer preordained by nature. It could be, There could be intervention from human activity, especially in a planned way, and that would read, lead not only for a greater affluence, but in the long run, happiness for all. It was a key aspect of Scottish Enlightenment thinking in the middle decades of the 18th century. And the second ideological element was the belief in individualism, that the old communal structures, because many of these um, old um, agricultural structures, settlements, um, uh, were communal, uh, where there was a collective process involved. That collective process, those collective structures had existed for centuries. And this kind of new dynamic comes in, where landowners, and particularly their advisors, the factors or managers, or the estate chamberlains, as they are called, Many of them educated in Scottish universities, in the in the universities of the Enlightenment, um, come up with the assumption, and it does become it does become an assumption. It's not really a question an orthodoxy, that 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 process of communalism is archaic, and counterproductive, and it's impossible impossible to develop the new farming, the new agriculture, without, um, if you like. Destroying the collective controls and allowing ambition and individualism to come to the fore. So it's very much um, uh, the. Uh, I mean, you could argue if you were thinking about it in moral terms, it's the unleashing almost of greed uh, and opportunity. In a sense, it's it's so modern. You know, it's we still have it today. It, it's the it's the it's 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 the it's the birth at least in one small country, although it was happening and many other countries at the same time, of new values which are market-driven, which regard land no longer as a source of, of living alone, but as an asset, an asset to be exploited in order to maximise profit.
0: How do you hope, with your new book, to amend the way in which the clearances are thought about, talked about and remembered?
1: If the... Um, Uh, If the the arguments, and as I say, the supporting evidence in the book are broadly thought not to be true because we can never get to that final position, but certainly convincing, um, it will transform, uh, I think, because it's such a central part, not only of modern Scottish history, but actually of modern Scottish culture. Everybody knows about the clearances in this country, and of course also the great Scottish diaspora worldwide. Uh, It will certainly encourage people to think about the way that the uh, modern Scotland was fashioned and developed because this is a gripping story and if I've done it correctly, they should find it to be gripping. Um, And then finally, of course, surprise. Uh, One of the great joys of my discipline, the the reaction, say, of a public audience to a lecture, uh, I didn't know it was like that the scales falling from the eyes, um, the sort of thing you sometimes felt in a lecture theatre with undergraduates, um, that would be extremely satisfying and pleasing. That was Sir Tom Devine.
2: The Scottish Clearances, The History of the Dispossessed, 1600-1900, to 1900, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Alan Lane. And for more Scottish history don't forget to check out our website, historyextra.com. And that is the end of today's episode, but do join us on Thursday when Christopher Somerville will be exploring the history of Britain's cathedrals.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library.